Welcome to part two of our three-part series, Chasing the Scream, where Johan Hari talks about the impact of legalizing heroin in Switzerland and the surprising results of an experiment that became known as Rat Park. Welcome to the Cover Two Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover Two Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover Two Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover Two podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover Two Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. So you make a point in, in your book that only 10% of drug users become addicts, but the vast majority of users are not harmed by it. Today, we have the most potent drugs the world has ever known. You know, in the mid-90s with the advent of Oxycontin, Oxycodone. So we've heard doctors advise that anyone could become addicted if they were overprescribed enough opioids. So can you comment on that? Yeah, this is a big question. And I think we're really misunderstanding what's going on in a way that's, that's a disaster. So... <clears throat> I'll step back a bit and talk about uh, some of the things that surprised me about addiction and then I'll relate it to the, the opioid crisis, if that's okay. So sure. if you had asked me at the start of this journey, you know, what causes, for example, heroin addiction, I would have looked at you like you're an idiot. I would have said, well, obviously heroin causes heroin addiction. We've been told this story since Harry Anslinger's first days. This seems like common sense. It, I, I literally thought I'd seen it happen in front of me with my own family. We think that what happens is if we kidnap the first 20 people to walk past your home in Ohio and we injected them all with heroin every day for, you know, for a month, at the end of that, they will be heroin addicts for a simple reason that there are chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to physically need. They'd have this desperate physical hunger for heroin. And that's what addiction is, right? The, the hooks take you, so we call it being hooked. That's the understanding, the, yes. Yeah. And the first thing that led me to that is saying not right about that. It was explained to me by lots of doctors. In Britain, where as you can tell from my voice I'm from, if you, if you, you know, if I, after this interview, if I walk out into the street and get hit by a car and I break my hip, I'll be taken to hospital and I'll be given, it's quite likely I'll be given a lot of a drug called diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin. It's the medically pure form of heroin. Um, and I'll be given it for quite long periods of time. Anyone listening to this who's got a British grandmother if your grandmother's had a hip replacement operation, your grandmother has taken a lot of heroin. If what we think is right, the exposure to the chemical hooks is the primary driver of addiction, what should be happening to all these people in hospital in Britain? 
should be hooked. Some of them, well, a significant number of them should be becoming addicted, right? Um, this has been studied very carefully. It virtually never happens. Which, if you, when I learned that, to be honest, I just didn't believe it, right? I just thought it can't be right. I kept looking at all the scientific evidence. I kept talking to all these doctors. I kept talking to people in Britain who'd been given lots of heroin when they were in hospital and they weren't addicted. Um, uh, you don't hear people in NA, um, you know, in Britain saying, oh, I became addicted because, you know, I was given heroin in hospital. And this was so weird and so puzzling to me. I kept thinking, well, what? I don't understand what's going on. And the key to understanding, one of the keys to understanding what I think is going on and I think leads to a different discussion, the opioid crisis, is to understand um, this, this crucial experiment. So um, in the 1970s, this, this I, I, I went to meet, sorry, I did, obviously I didn't do this in the 70s, I, wasn't, <laughs> I was only born in 1970, but I went to meet an extraordinary professor of psychology in Vancouver called Bruce Alexander, who in the 1970s did this really incredible experiment. He had believed the chemical hooks theory. He'd learned the chemical hooks theory, been taught it, but he, he was always a bit wary of it. He didn't seem to match with what he was seeing with the people with addiction problems he was working with. And he started looking, well, how, how do we know this? And he explained to me that the theory, the chemical hooks theory, comes partly from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. That was really simple experiments. You just take a rat, you put it in a cage, you give it two water bottles. One is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or, or, or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. You might remember there was a famous advert in the 1980s, Partnership for Drug for America advert. Um, you can go to YouTube and type in, I think it's Partnership for Drug for America rat advert. And it shows a rat in a cage that just drinks and drinks and drinks the cocaine-laced water until it kills itself. Hmm. And that's that totally fits with our theory of addiction, right? Yeah, we'll have to post that YouTube video. Said, well, hang on a minute. You put the rat alone in an empty cage where it's got nothing except these drugs. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically like heaven for rats. They've got loads of friends. They can have loads of sex. They've got loads of cheese, loads of colored balls, loads of tunnels, everything rats like. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. But this is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They almost never use it. None of them ever used it compulsively. None of them ever overdosed. So you go from almost 100% compulsive use and overdose when their lives are terrible and they're alone and they're isolated and they're deprived of the things that give life meaning to a rat to, almost, to, to no compulsive use and no overdose when they have the things that give life meaning. So one of the things I concluded from that and from many other pieces of evidence I'm happy to talk about is that the opposite of addiction is, is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And this has huge implications. So let's think of, apply this to the opioid crisis. I've spent a lot of time in places like Keene, New Hampshire, which is the epicenter of the, the opioid crisis. And you can really learn a lot from being in those places. So... One thing we know is that, uh, so the chemical, chemical it's important to say chemical hooks are real, they exist, people do experience physical withdrawal from some drugs more than others. Uh, one of the point we can actually measure how much, there's, there's a very broad scientific agreement that one of the strongest chemical hooks in, in, available to anyone listening to this is nicotine, right? When you smoke cigarettes for a significant period of time and you stop, uh, you, you do experience a physical withdrawal from the drug, from the chemical hook nicotine. Um, 
So there, there's, we, we know exactly, we, we, we can figure out how much of that addiction is due to the chemical hook through a very simple experiment that lots of your listeners will have taken part in. They're called nicotine patches. When nicotine patches are invented in the late 80s and eventually become commercially available in the early 90s, there's a really big wave of optimism because people think, people believe the old theory about addiction, that it's, you know, caused by the chemical hook. So they're like, all right, well, nicotine patches give you the chemical hook, right? You get all the chemical hook from a, a nicotine patch that you would have got from a cigarette. So they thought, well, people will just stop smoking then. About 17% of people, smokers, who are motivated, who use nicotine patches, stop smoking. It's important to say 17% is not nothing, right? The chemical hooks are real. They have a significant effect. If you can meet the chemical hook, you will, um, you know, you will give some people a much better chance of stopping. But it's 17% is a lot less than 100%, right? So we have to understand what's going on with all these other people. And there's so much evidence, and I'm happy to go through various aspects of it, but the, the core of it, I concluded what the core of it, the core of addiction is not wanting to be present in your life <clears throat> because your life is too painful a place to be. Now, if we think about this in, in relation to the opioid crisis, so what people are being told <clears throat> It's a story. Now, I want to preface this by saying anyone can look it up. I hate Big Pharma. They've done monstrous things to the world. They're a disgusting industry. I've written many articles criticizing many aspects of Big Pharma. So I'm a thousand miles away. I'm a lefty British person who hates these corporations. I'm Duly noted. A thousand miles away. <laughs> mm. But what we've been told <clears throat> is this story that basically we have an opioid crisis because Big Pharma, in its pursuit of profit, uh, falsely marketed these drugs, gave them to far too many people. Lots of people got hooked to the chemical hooks in these drugs. And uh, that's why we have this opioid crisis. And therefore, the solution is to massively cut off these prescriptions and, you know, redu redu significantly reduce the prescriptions. Um, you know, some people say with compassionate care for the people who are cut off. Um, and that will solve the problem. If the problem is a problem of the chemical hooks, then you want to take away the chemical hooks, right? Yep. Um, there's not no truth in that. They did falsely advertise them. They are a disgusting corporation, but that is not the core. And their chemical hooks are real and they are playing a role in some people's addictions. But that is not the core of what is going on. If chemical hooks would cause an addiction crisis, then Britain would have an enormous heroin problem from all the people being given heroin in hospital the whole time. And it's not happening. Do you have a heroin problem? But it's not happening in those people. So we have to ask what else is going on. And to ask what else is going on, you don't have to spend that long in the places where the crisis is worse. It's where people are in terrible pain. Look at when the opioid crisis spikes up. It's after 2008. Is there anyone listening to this podcast who, can, who can't think of something that happened in 2008 that made a lot of people's lives a lot more painful and made a lot more of them want to seek out anesthetics? The economy tanked. Middle class people have to work harder for less. They can't provide for their families. They're really struggling. They're in a lot of pain. At the same time, all sorts of disastrous social trends have been happening. People have fewer friends. They're taught to value bullshit like what the Kardashians, what the Kardashians are doing today, not the people around them. We have a culture in which all sorts of disasters, social and psychological disasters, have been occurring. The reason why we've had a really big increase in opioid addiction is because a lot more people are in a lot more pain. 
And, you know, I, I think, uh, I'll give you an example of one person I keep thinking about, it's not a woman who had no opioid problem, but I think it helps you to understand. In the run-up to the election, <clears throat> I was reporting on a group who, who were doing a lot of um, canvassing in Cleveland. They were trying to get out the vote. I think anyone listening to this can guess mm-hmm. who I wanted to get the vote out for. They were trying to get out the vote. And we were in this place in Cleveland called Slavic City. Uh, I don't know why it's called that. It's not Slavic. It's a very poor part of Cleveland. Like a third of the houses have been demolished, a third are abandoned, and a third still have people living in there. I'm familiar with that. That's that's our city here. Yeah. Yeah. That's where we're doing. Oh, yeah. That's where we're doing the podcast from. Sorry, I knew you were in Cleveland, right? Well, you know much better than me. Just right outside of Cleveland, half an hour out. Oh, right, great. So it's one door I knocked on. There's a woman who, from talking to her, I discovered was the same age as me, 38. I was 37 then. I would genuinely have guessed she was 60. She had been really beaten down by her. She was quite intelligent. We had a, she was very angry. We had this interesting conversation about the election. And she made this, um, she was talking about how terrible the area was and how she, she couldn't cope. And she made this verbal slip. She was talking about what the area used to be like. And <clears throat> when her, you know, for her grandparents and parents and for her. And she meant to say when I was young. What she actually said is when I was alive. Mm-hmm. And it really hit me. Freudian slip. Yeah. This is how a lot of people feel in the United States and in Western culture generally. The, the people have been deprived of the things that give life meaning and they're really suffering. And in a situation where lots of people... So if it was just exposure to the drug, right, what we would be seeing would be even increases in opioid addiction uh, across the United States, because there's exposure to the drug all over the country. All we're actually seeing is where is opioid addiction worse? Worst. It's worst in the places where suicide has massively increased, where um, other forms of addiction like alcoholism have massively increased. What does that tell us? It tells us that these are responses to underlying problems. And there's another way we know this. And this is something that every American should be talking about, and it's really frustrating to me trying to get this message out. There is a place that has solved an opioid crisis. I've been there. I've seen how they did it, and they did the exact opposite of what Americans are being told to do now by lots of people on our side. Switzerland in the year 2000 had an enormous drug problem. Uh, people might remember these famous images that were on the news, these disastrous kind of parks full of people injecting each other in the neck, these kind of nightmare. You can look at it on YouTube these nightmare images. So I went to spend a lot of time in Switzerland. I, I'm, I'm a Swiss citizen anyway. My dad's from there. To find out, well, what, how did they turn this around? Because they've really turned it around. And one of the people who explained to me how they, how they did it was a woman, incredible woman called Ruth Dreyfus. She's an extraordinary person. She's the first female president of Switzerland. You guys might want to try that female president one day. Um, incredible <laughs> woman. And, sorry, that's my little partisan point yep. there. <laughs> a little editorial on the side. That's okay. We'll let you get away with that. Uh, the, the, so Ruth Dreyfus explained to, me, explained to me how they did it, and then I went and saw all over the country how they did it. So she, she explained to Swiss people at the height of this crisis that the solution was to legalize heroin for people with addiction problems. And Switzerland is a super conservative country. My Swiss grandmother got the vote in 1974. This is not San Francisco. And people were quite shocked. And Ruth explained to people, when you hear the word legalization, what you picture is like anarchy and chaos. What we have now with prohibited drugs is anarchy and chaos. We have unknown users uh, selling unknown chemicals, to, uh, sorry, unknown criminals selling unknown chemicals to unknown users 
all in the dark, all filled with violence, all filled with violence, disease, and chaos. The solution is to legalize heroin and provide really strong support for the people who have an addiction. So, what they do is the, there's, there are heroin clinics. Ruth Dreyfus, actually, as former president, lives very close to one of these clinics. Set up the clinic. I went to this clinic at um, 7 a.m. Uh, Swiss people believe in doing things very early. It's a big, <laughs> one of many barriers between me and Swiss culture. So you go in. Um, you, if you, you're one of the patients, you have to go at 7 in the morning, or between 7 and 9. You turn up. You go in. You're given your heroin. It's medically pure heroin. You can't take it out with you. You've got to use it there. A nurse will watch you while you're given where you take your heroin. And then you leave and you go to your job because they give you loads of support to get a job. They give you loads of psychological support. They make sure you've got secure housing. So what they do is two things. The first is they give you the drug you're addicted to. And the second is they give you extensive support to deal with the reasons why you wanted to use that drug in the first place. And one of the things that surprised me spending time in the clinic in Geneva was they... They will give you any dose of heroin you want, except the one that would except one that would kill you, obviously. Mm-hmm. And you can stay on that program as long as you want. There's never any pressure to cut, reduce your dose, or to stop. And yet, almost everyone on that program reduces their dose and stops. And I said to Rita Mangi, the, the chief psychiatrist, "This is really weird. This is we're told that the drug takes us over, and that if you took more, you'd want more, and you'd have this ravenous, you'd spiral and spiral. How can this be?" And she looked at me like I was an idiot. She said, well, their lives get better. And as their lives get better, they don't want to be so anesthetized. And to me, it's something really fundamental about the opioid crisis. What we're doing now is the exact opposite of Switzerland. So think about the Swiss thing. Step one, give them the drug. Step two, uh, give them support to deal with the reasons why they want to use the drug. The results of that are really clear. We can all look at the major studies of this. Professor Ambrose Uchtenhagen has done the main studies. Do you know how many people have died of heroin overdoses on the legal heroin program in Switzerland in the more than 10 years it's been in place? I would guess it's very few, if any. Zero. Not one person. Hmm. So in the legal program, no one has died. Outside the legal program, some illegal heroin use continues, but the deaths have also massively fallen, partly because heroin has just become much less popular uh, because because of the legal program. Um, I can explain why if you want. But the, 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 so... What's happening in the U.S. is the exact opposite, right? Yeah, yeah. So Have you met? Take away the legal drug, oh, forcing them onto the illegal market, and instead of giving support, you in fact give criminal records, shame, and threats. So, what we're doing is taking, the, doing the exact opposite of the one place that has succeeded in dealing with this. Yeah, that's sad. So, have you had an opportunity to get to know some of these? users uh, in Switzerland and yeah, uh, learn some of their things. stories and, and uh, can you can you share a few with us so that we really can kind of get a real good sense for this and how their lives changed and and, and so, why then they yeah. really without pressure they stopped so I remember one guy um, who, who, who talked about he is actually one of the people who have been in the program longest but he talked about how there had been this he talks about the constant scramble when the drug is illegal to be trying to get your next fix. The, the, the chaos of street use, that isn't a phrase he used, but that was how I would summarize it. Mm-hmm. The kind of constant chaos and churn of street use. And for some, that is addictive in and of itself, that lifestyle, right? Yeah, and he, he did reflect on that. And he said there's an excitement in it, and there's, 
but there's also just a horror in it. You've got to be constantly committing crimes, mm-hmm. not constantly. You've got to be frequently committing crimes. This is actually one of the reasons why, by the way, in Switzerland, um, that they, a few years after heroin was legalised, they had a referendum on it. Some conservative Swiss citizens. It's very easy to have a referendum in Switzerland, and some conservative Swiss citizens had a referendum to basically get rid of the program. And 70% of Swiss people, 70% voted to keep it legal. Not because they were particularly compassionate towards use. I'd like to say it was. I don't think that was why. It wasn't why. It was because crime fell so much. I mean, in the book, I give the figures, but there was a really significant fall in street crime. Um, because, you know, you just have few people robbing people. Street prostitution literally ended. Um, so... I remember the guy. I remember this guy saying to me, he was an older guy, but he'd been involved in trafficking and all sorts of uh, drug-related crime. He hadn't ever been. He was quite urbane. He hadn't ever been a kind of him been mugging people or anything. But he, he he'd been involved in a lot of crime, and he um, he talked about the sensation he felt like he was coming back to life. And partly it's about the removal of stigma as well. Switzerland's quite a judgmental country. It's not unlike the US. Like you can imagine place in the US that Switzerland most reminds me of is Utah. This is not, I can't stress enough, it's not a liberal, it's not like San Francisco doing it. And it was, and it was partly just, you know, being told you're not disgusting. Actually, you deserve care. You deserve to be looked after. You know, we're here to help you. We're not here to shame you and hound you. We're actually here to help you turn your life around which was very deep there, which was very deep in Portugal, the other place, which is it's slightly different, and I can explain how if you want, but they decriminalised all drugs, which is different to legalising heroin, but and transferred all the money into programmes to turn people's lives around, which again was, you know, this very, um, again, has yielded extraordinary results, a 50% fall in injecting drug use, 80% fall in overdose, um, you know, really extraordinary uh, transformation, um, so I remember just the, 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 with the people in the Geneva Clinic that I spoke to, just a sense of relief, you know. That, that, and, and, and then, and then I don't remember if it was art, if I went there after, or if I just thought of them. But I, I had, I have also been to, for example, lots of American prisons where, you know, people who in Switzerland would be given a house, care, compassion, and a prescription for heroin are instead in a you know, going through cold turkey in a jail cell. In, in in Arizona, I went out on a chain gang of women who were made to, in that psychopath, Sheriff Joe Arpaio's prison, the guy who was just pardoned by Trump, in his prison, Estrella Prison, or Tent City as it's known. You know, a group of women made to go out on a chain gang wearing T-shirts saying, I was a drug addict, while members of the public humiliate them, jeer at them. That was um, the guy that was just yeah. pardoned. Sorry, I, that was the guy that was just pardoned when I read that. I didn't yeah, make that right. connection no, that that was him. I actually feel very sorry for you. I mean, the thing mm-hmm. is, he's just this broken. I didn't put this in the book actually, and this might be a sign of what a woolly liberal I am. That even with someone like him, I look for reasons to think of him as human. But the Joe Arpaio, by the way, was a personal disciple of Harry Anslinger. Harry Anslinger trained Joe Arpaio. You know, the guy who watched the drug war and loved Joe Arpaio. Joe Arpaio had a had Harry Anslinger's signature on his wall when I went to interview him and said, oh, Harry Anslinger, what a great guy. I was thrilled that I knew who Harry Anslinger was. It's the direct line from Anslinger to, to Trump and Jeff Sessions. But the... Um, wow. Who, and by the way, Trump and Wait. Jeff Sessions are using almost exactly the same words as Harry Anslinger. 
did back then. You know, the kind of Mexicans are the responsible for the drug war. They're carrying it over, all that stuff. All right, so uh, let's back the, up just a little bit. Let's let's sure. um, let's go back to Joe Apio and put him in perspective. Tie him a little tighter to Onslinger and his role here. Yeah, so uh, Joe Arpaio, I think his first job, if not his first job, one of his early jobs, was working for the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, the um, government department that was run by Anslinger. And Arpaio, you know, he's this... You know, I remember when I went to the prison and I was seeing these women being humiliated by the guards and just treated in the most appalling way. And it, there's a funny dynamic in that prison. It's, it, it, uh, I don't think this would be the case now because our pyro is gone, but where most prisons where abuses are happening, they don't want you to see the abuses, right? They, I've had this experience before. You're in a prison. The prisoners tell you something bad's happening. You tell the guards you want to see where it's happening, and they won't let you. So the women in Tent City were really terrified of this place they call the hole, which is the solitary block. And it's, it's, it's literally it's a hole. It's a concrete hole. And women are put there from all men. Um, I spend time with the women, but this also happens to the men. Um, into this, this this concrete block, and they've got nothing. They've got no TV. They've got no. They've got nothing. But the the. And I remember when I went there. So I said to the guards, I wanted to see it. Sure, sure, they would say no, and they're like, sure, of course, come with us. And of course, then you realise, oh, the point of this prison is that it's designed to humiliate people. It's like a pantomime of cruelty. So they want you to see the humiliation, the cruelty, the viciousness. Um, and so they took me to the hole. And when I spoke to one of the women in the hole, who was this in this desperate, desperate state, as you can imagine, I suddenly realised this is the closest you could get to an exact human replication of the cages that guaranteed addiction in rats mm. and this is what we're doing to women to to make them stop it's the most this is one of the really important things about these insights from rat park and many of the other things that flow from this different way of thinking about addiction so the theory the arpaio theory the harry anslinger theory is that in order to stop people being addicted you need to inflict pain and suffering on them to give them an incentive to stop right and this language has been internalized by a lot of, and I don't criticize people who've internalized it, by a lot of self-help groups, by even by some rehabs. Um, once you understand that addiction is actually a way of trying to avoid pain, avoid being present with your pain, you understand how crazy this is. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, um, that, that approach, the inflicting pain approach doesn't work when it comes to addiction. It's much worse than that. It's not that it doesn't work, it's that it makes addiction worse. These people are, those women that I met on that chain gang are going to go out more traumatized, more broken, and they're going to be more likely to seek out very powerful anesthetics. It's not that it, it's to say it doesn't work, it's to underestimate the harm that you do. It's, it's not that it doesn't work, it's that it's, it's destroying people even more. Thank you for listening to this second episode of our three-part series with Johan Hari best-selling author of Chasing the Screen. Please tune in when Mr. Hari talks about dealing with the underlying causes of addiction and the possibility of taking a fresh approach to the war on drugs in our third and final episode of this series.
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.